the alternative stories and fake realities podcast. Audio drama, poetry, fiction. You're listening to the Alternative Stories and Fake Realities podcast. Welcome to our midwinter edition and our final podcast of 2021. In this podcast, we'll share original monologues from regular Alt Stories contributors and from some new writers. We'd like to thank London Lit Lab for helping us to find these brilliant new voices. We'd also like to thank everyone who'd submitted monologues to this edition, and we're sorry that we couldn't include all the submitted pieces in our final podcast mix. We'll post biographies and links to all our contributors in the show notes for the podcast. Our first monologue is by Bean Sawyer, a writer and stained glass illustrator from Pembrokeshire in West Wales. Bean's monologue is called The Hidden People, and is read by Sally Walker-Taylor. Shh, be quiet. My footsteps are like a heart, beating out a steady rhythm as I walk down the crispy lane. Snowy peaks on the hills rise through the mist. My breath a cloud, cheeks and nose pinched red. Long abandoned spiderwebs hang broken in the gorse. Autumn had stolen the last leaf from spiny branches. Those mossy naked giants are now sleeping in the valley. Dormant. Exposed to wind and rain and frost, their tangle of roots home to the hidden people. The Huldra, Tonta, Echichon. Elf. They watch me as I stop beside an old chestnut and rest my mittened hand upon its bark. Shh, be quiet. I peep into a hollow. An eye peeps back. With a gasp, I fall backwards onto the frosty ground, knocking my head against a stone. I watch the world spin. Then, darkness. I open my eyes. It's darker still. The smell of earth is around me. I'm lying on my back, inside my tomb. I've been buried alive, I cry. It's a mistake. I'm not dead. Let me out. Shh, be quiet, the hidden people whisper. Our friends are sleeping. Ladybird, butterfly, bumblebee. Dormouse, toad and bat. It's not time for them to wake. They sound sharp, like the icicles that hang from the gutters. A soft light starts to glow, and I see the chamber where I lie. I see them too. One holds a lantern high. Their faces, like the ones I see in the shapes of the landscape, in leaves and pebbles, petals and trunks, both delicate and plump, ancient and young. My head is tender. I take off my mitten and touch my scalp. It's sticky. We fixed your head with honey, they say. Oh, thank you, I reply. You were not meant to see us, said one. It's the least we can do, said another. And on Christmas Eve, said a third. I smiled at the hidden people as their shadows danced on the walls. The guardians of all that flowers and fruits. Of all that lives and dies. Of the changing seasons, the light and the darkness. Where am I? I asked. Beneath the chestnut. That from a voice that sounded like a conquer. We're glad you live. The lantern went out 
as if a breath of wind had found the flame. Are you there? I asked. Where are you? Come back. I crawled on my belly until I found an edge. With one handful of earth after another, I made a gap large enough to squeeze through. Pushing turf and moss aside, I lay at the base of the chestnut, looking up at the gnarly limbs, the cold air biting my skin once more. Shh, be quiet. I see you. Louis Watson is an actor and writer based in Elgin in the north of Scotland. He's appeared in many old stories dramas and his monologue is called To All A Good Life. In the bleak midwinter, thoughts can tangle like Christmas lights, binary illuminations in tired twilights, firing up like familiar familial fights. While it snows in the bathrooms of governance, in this groundhog dance, we're always bitten and they're constantly sly. We kept our distance, but they just lived a lie. Tell me maybe, do you recognise this? Well, it's been too many years, it doesn't surprise me. It's a white Christmas for the select few, while the rest of us weather sleet storms and wonder whether we'll reach home. The clean bedsheets of mum-preserved rooms, remembering every ritual and keeping everything exactly the same. The bucks fizz chilling on the back step, awaiting the inevitable spoonerism, because your granny always tell you that the Arlene's are the best. So... The stuffing's up your end, and Gonzo is the Dickens. It might not be a Clinton Christmas, but it's ours. And all of the hours since the last dean all seem worth it when the smiles spread and we are all overfed a food coma of coziness. Complete gastric bliss. The years rolled back and we are reverted to the kids we were before. To the kids we've been all along. Because we're all just kids just muddling through. Kids just trying to be nice in a world that is naughty. When the reunions are smaller, the drinks of fallen friends are poured. Because sometimes the spirits take more than before. So we remember those kids that have left us behind. And keep the gift that they were in our presence. It can be a lonely time of year, and the promise of a new one can be the creeping of a new fear. So look out for your fellow man, and don't buy the lie of a surplus population. Be the cause of celebration, and join the jubilation. Play the pipes of peace, and give life a new lease. A Merry Christmas to all, and to all a good life. Regular listeners to Alternative Stories will be familiar with the voice of Marie Claire Wood. As well as being a talented actress who has appeared in a number of our audio dramas, Marie Claire is also a poet and writer. Here's Marie Claire performing Winter Monologue. My thighs burned as I took heavy strides up the inclined path. The climb had looked like a gentle curve from the car park, but it was deceptive unrelenting as it threatened to defeat my sudden desire to become a mountain climber on Christmas Eve. Being inside another day had seemed unbearable, so spontaneously zipped into a puffy coat and stuffed into gloves and long socks, I had decided to tackle the largest nearby hill Google told me was walkable. My quest for an entirely new hiking route had taken me an hour away from home, to a bit of the countryside I had never visited and left me ruddy-faced in the bitter midwinter wind. I had considered giving up when the cold was biting at my nose and whipping my hair into knots, but now I was so close to the curving precipice of this hill, I stubbornly couldn't turn around. I had resented my daily walks the way a kid resents brushing his teeth. I both knew it was necessary for my health and liked the results, but for some reason the chore of it was nothing short of drudgery. But today... Faced with the four walls of my home again, it seemed like the only escape. As I crested the hill, I bent over and put my hands on my knees, pulling in long, ice-cold breaths. 
invigorated by the feeling of my body working, so different to the days on days sat going stale in my bedroom or my office or my kitchen. I stretched upwards towards the vast grey sky and smiled, pleased with myself. I turned to take in my reward, a view of the crinkled bowl of the valley below me, and I was met not with a sepia-toned still life but with a landscape on fire. The ever-low winter sun was just straining to peek over the valley, but the few lazy rays that had made the journey managed to turn every tiny facade of ice and frost a brilliant gold. I was awed into complete stillness by the beauty of it, a sharp exhale of breath billowing in front of me into a brief gilt-edged cloud and then dispersing into the air. The valley held the amber glow like two old weathered hands cradling some brilliant elixir. Where the lifeline would be was a black curving road delivering visitors to the middle of their golden-palmed village. A small white van tracked along it as I watched, down into the valley, I'm sure carrying the last delivery of online purchases or crates of wine for the local pub. Or perhaps a tradesman was making their final stretch home after a long day, bent under people's sinks or in battered old boiler cupboards in frosty flats. I watched it for a moment, taking the long bend slow and easy before it disappeared behind a row of dense trees. This was the second Christmas I would be spending alone. Last year, too bemused by the novelty of it all for the loneliness to penetrate too deep. But this year, it felt like it had somehow managed to seep into my bones. Like the sort of winter chill that leaves you with shivers long after you've come into the warm. I couldn't shake it. It felt unending and inevitable and yet entirely cruel. Until this moment. Sometimes the beauty in winter is hard to find. Only if you look closely at the snowflakes do they look unique. Only for a moment can you admire the beauty of the cheeky red robin before he flits off again. But this sunset-coloured valley was painted for me in this brief moment. And suddenly, being alone today of all days felt like an honour. Jackie Jorgensen is a Canadian-American writer, actor and audio dramatist. Jackie has appeared in our two previous Christmas podcasts and we thought this was a good tradition to continue. Her monologue is called Home for the Holidays and here's Jackie to introduce it. Hi, I'm Jackie Jorgensen. I'm an actor, a writer and I produce an original fairy tale audio drama called Tales from the Ether. I wrote and performed this next monologue called Home for the Holidays. I hope you enjoy. Happy Holidays. You have one new message. First new message. Hi, Mom. It's me. Uh, guess I missed you. We have a snow advisory, 12 inches. The news said that there's more snow on the islands than in Denver. Can you believe that? Oh, uh, I'm at Mauna Kea, and uh, it's a bit windy up here, as you can imagine. But I'm covering the phone with my hand now, so hope you can hear me. Uh, of course, the locals aren't so impressed with me being shocked at the blizzard warning. I guess it snows up here every year. But still, you know, I had to come and see it for myself. If I squint, it almost looks like home. Just have to pretend the mountains aren't there. Or the lava rock. Or the tourists, obviously. <laughs> just have to place some pine trees there. And oh, I'll just mentally level this whole landscape real quick. And then add absolutely nothing for miles and miles. And voila. Just like that. Home. Can practically see you stirring hot chocolate in the kitchen from here. Oh, I okay. Uh, I'm realizing that you have your annual um, gingerbread house making party thing today. So yeah, that's why you didn't pick up. Really don't know how I forgot. Obviously, it's uh, my favorite tradition. 
And you remember how to make my patented chocolate paint, right? Just melt a bunch of milk and chocolate together? Like, not too thick, just enough so that it spreads? You can always, like, add to it, too, if it's not quite right. Um, and if you make too much, hey, I guess it snowed sludge this year. You know what they say, put the climate crisis back into Christmas. Um, and then on the marshmallow snowman, you know where I like to draw the eyes and the smile and the butt crack, right? I mean, Mom, would it even be a true gingerbread house without the anatomically correct snowman? How else am I supposed to know he's a living, breathing, magical entity here to teach us the true meaning of a proper fiber intake? You better not be rolling your eyes. It's the subtle details that are going to really sell the idea of your quaint gingerbread suburbia. And I know, deep down, you love it when I draw the butt crack. Like you say, a butt crack for a butthead, and that is a title I take very seriously. Someone must, uh, carry on my legacy. <laughs> Tell everyone I say hi, by the way. There's still time to come home, right? <laughs> no, I'm, I'm kidding. Um, I think, um, yeah, maybe I should uh, move back. You know, I can work from home anywhere. And uh, yes, I know, you know, that was my reason for coming here. But uh, if I'm going to spend my days by myself, I might as well do it where I can manage the cost of living. Gave it a pretty good year, um, but paradise isn't, uh, the paradise I thought it would be. Not when, um, <sighs> yeah, give me a ring when you get this, and, uh, I can tell you what I'm thinking. I mean, I honestly only called you to tell you about the snow, but, uh, I'm just thinking, and, uh, my lease is up next month, and, uh, I really do think I should fly home for the holidays, so maybe we should hire some movers. Should I leave a lockbox on my door before I come home? Um, sorry, I, I know this wasn't in your plans, so I can definitely stay at a hotel or something, but, uh... Yeah, you know, I've put the time in here. Uh, so obviously, I have this new idea where we dye a bunch of shredded coconut blue and call it Snowman Goes Surfing. Uh, and I can't just stay here when I've got an idea that is that legendary. Anyway, um, I should probably hike down this mountain before the blizzard really gets going, so. Love you, Mom. Talk soon. A Christmas tradition for many who live near the sea or close to inland water is a Christmas morning swim. This monologue, The Sunday Morning Club, by Sally Goebel, describes the bracing experience of dipping into freezing water on a midwinter day. Sally writes about outdoor swimming for The Guardian and for her own blog. Her monologue is read by Tiffany Clare. I am standing, knock-kneed, blue-tinged, nearly naked, wincing in the cold air. Not for the first time, I wonder why I'm here. The wind stings my skin, spiteful slaps. I hop from foot to foot, pretending that this odd little dance will give relief to my aching feet. In this moment of misery, I fold every part of my body inwards. I twist and twine my arms around one another. My shoulders hunch to meet my ears, protecting my neck, becoming as small as possible to hide from the weather. My bare hands search for my body's last warm crevices and, finding a welcoming armpit, burrow themselves away. I shudder. Pretend that it doesn't hurt. Pretend that you don't care. Breathe deeply. Unfurl. Embrace the feeling. Cold is just another sensation, I tell myself. A grimace. I can't put the moment off any longer. I slip off my shoes, abandoning them to the cold, wet concrete, and quickly lower myself down the steps into the water. A rush of panic. Whatever I felt before, that was nothing. As I climb down, rung by rung, discomfort is replaced by screaming, adrenaline-inducing pain. 
My feet hit the water first. I have stubbed every toe on an unobserved obstacle. My soles have been beaten by a heavy wooden mallet. Another rung. My hands have been slammed in a car door. Letting go of the ladder, I am fully submerged. I cannot catch my breath. The fillings in my teeth throb. My sinuses and temples ache so badly that the only way to make the pain lessen is by pressing my hands hard into my face. My skin is on fire, and not for the first time. I wonder why something so cold can feel so hot. Swim as fast as you can. Don't stop. Try not to panic. Breathe. Don't breathe. Faster. Slow down. Relax. Don't relax. Hurry up. Enough. That's enough. I'm done. Two lengths. I pull myself back up the steps. Ease my bruised feet gingerly into the shoes waiting on the concrete. The intensity of the pain subsides. Soon, I start to shake. My teeth chatter involuntarily, my face a rictus grin, my skin an angry crimson pink. My ring and middle fingers, in contrast, have turned the waxy yellow-white of a corpse. My hands hurt too much to do anything dexterous, so I shuffle into clothes that have no zips or buttons to fiddle with. Loose jumpers, baggy pants that can be pulled on easily. Layer after layer added, until my shape is lost entirely inside a crumpled, comforting bundle of wool, felt and down. Finally, relaxed. My jaw unclenches. My pulse regains its natural rhythm. Later, I stand waiting at the bus stop. Two girls standing there in their smart puffer jackets, hats and gloves. One says to the other, It's cold. I purse my lips. They don't know the meaning of the words, I think. A faint pink glow in my cheeks. A twinkle in my eye. Jessica Sakamoto Martini is a writer an evolutionary anthropologist who regularly tweets about folklore symbolism and fairy tale. Her monologue is called The Golden Ball and it's read by Sally Walker-Taylor. We all had a golden ball once. Some of us had found it in the depths of a well, in the cold chimney of an icy house, in the forbidden castle where we were told not to go. Through the glass of the golden ball, we saw a larger and brighter world with no corners, like a being in flux. The day danced with the night, the dark whispered secrets to the light, the summer dressed in winter coats. We carried the golden ball everywhere we went, until one day, one by one, we lost it. We all had a different account of it. The smaller man said he had put the golden ball in a small box that was later forgotten during the move. A woman with red lips said she had thrown it to her mother, who didn't catch it in time. The guy with big fists claimed it was silly to have the golden ball in the first place, or so was what the adulthood had asserted, sitting at his living room table. What we were sure of was that the disappearance of the golden ball had taken something from us. A dream a love, a remembering. Was it a ball? Was it gold? Or just painted yellow? Was it made of glass or snow? When asked what we wanted for Christmas, we wrote long letters trying to name the thing we could no longer name. So we tried to find the golden ball. Google Maps took us along the city streets, but its scent was gone, its snail trail covered by snow. Then the smaller man said his grandmother had once said something while grilling the corns. When you lose something, go to the forest with only your ears and eyes. And so we did. Not all of us. Some got scared and some said it was crazy. The golden ball wasn't worth it. Still, we went. In the woods, when it's dark, it's full. The smaller man swore he saw a bear that looked like him. 
Another saw a pine tree with all the gifts she had been promised but never received, with the excuse of girls should behave better. The man with big fists witnessed a mountain hare turn into a woman, who told him it's never too late to dance. The woman with the red lips heard the owl whistle the name of the mother she thought she had lost long ago. Then we reached the centre of the forest that was nowhere and everywhere. The centre of the golden ball. We grabbed the snow that didn't freeze our hands. We made balls and we threw them at each other. We laughed, we cried, we remembered. It snowed in the city. People said it was a strange snowfall. They said the snowflakes looked like shining golden balls under the moonlight. They said it felt like something was coming back to them. At last. Traditional turkey dinner can be the highlight of a family Christmas, but some of us have different dietary requirements. Here's Jude Wiley Morton, a writer from Northamptonshire, with a monologue about his own festive culinary experiences. When people ask why I'm vegan, I tell them my appendix exploded. When they tell me that seems odd, I reply, well, I suppose it is. Your appendix isn't supposed to explode. Generally, when you get appendicitis, your appendix becomes inflamed, just a little angry, unstable enough to convince the doctor to remove it before it explodes. But mine didn't do that. One day it was all calm, resting uselessly in my lower abdomen, then splat. All my organs were covered in pus and I developed sepsis. For eight weeks I was fixed to a feeding tube, condite for the whole Christmas season. This meant I missed everything, the mince pies, gingerbread, but most of all, the turkey. Something about missing my Christmas meal affected me psychologically. This, mixed in with being unable to eat a thing because of the feeding tube, caused some great confusion in my brain, which led to a sort of disorder. Once I recovered, I could only eat turkey. Turkey sandwiches, breaded turkey fingers, roasted turkey, turkey twizzlers, poached turkey, deep-fried turkey with a turkey stock gravy, but that was all. After months of eating only turkey, I was left jaundiced with a vitamin D deficiency. Also, as I lost weight, I developed a flap of skin below my neck like a dewlap. Mum said I was turning into a turkey. She said, any day soon, I would eat myself. My parents visited plenty of psychiatrists to work out how exactly I might break my dietary obsession. One guy recommended they try diversify my diet through making me eat only Christmas-related foods. First, I could sample cranberry sauce on my turkey, perhaps. Then I could stray into vegetables, such as roasted turnips or carrots. I could get some vitamin A from green peas or calcium from a cheese board. All the fruit I needed could be found in a Christmas cake. Ultimately, the diet failed. I managed one Brussels sprout before my throat closed up, allergic to anything that was not turkey. So I resumed the turkey diet, that is, until one day in December. We were driving from our home in Leicester up the M1 to London to do our Christmas shopping. Dad was chewing on a flapjack in the passenger seat, Mum was singing carols when lots of flashing brake lights ahead of us slowed our car to a stop. An accident. Turned over on the road was this huge lorry, its cab smashed in with its load shed right across the carriageway. At first I thought the truck was delivering feather boas. Sprawled out on the road was this vibrant red colour and feathers. Then the more I looked, I realised things were moving in the spillage. Wings were flapping, animals were limping from the carnage, all these turkeys. Suddenly I saw one rocket up from behind a car and fly into oncoming traffic over the road. And then another. Turkey after turkey, having survived the crash, made a bid for freedom, flying at the oncoming cars in the lane over. I know this seems strange now, but being so young, I'd never quite considered where my turkey came from. I'd never really thought that something had to die for my favourite food. I didn't realise what death entailed, and as it turned out, it involved a lot of blood. Mum tried to cover my eyes, but I shook free. 
looked at all the desperate animals breaking for their freedom and yelped. Then, as if in protest to my diet, I grabbed Dad's flapjack from his hand and forced myself to eat it. At that moment, the spell was broken. I said to my mum I would never eat turkey again. When Christmas finally came along, instead of turkey, mum made a delicious nut roast. And that's how I became a vegan. I've not eaten turkey for 15 years. If you're enjoying this edition of Alternative Stories and Fake Realities, please consider subscribing in your favourite podcast app to have new editions delivered to you the moment they are released. You'll also have access to our full archive of audio drama, poetry and fiction podcasts, including all the dramas mentioned in this edition. We always appreciate ratings and reviews, preferably in Apple Podcasts or Podchaser. These help to raise the profile of our podcast, allowing more people to listen and more content to be produced. Coming up now, we have two darker, noirish monologues from writers new to alternative stories. The Pond is by Carolyn Stockdale, a short story writer with an interest in folklore and landscape from Lancashire. The reader is Tiffany Clare. Eileen waits for winter all year, for the darkest day when the sun leaves the sky by three o'clock and she can no longer tell her neighbours that the nights are drawing in. Sitting in the quiet of her cottage, she shuts the curtains against the fairy lights and carol singers and listens to the tea leaves. A reading today just for herself. This year, like every other year at this time, they show a skater on a frozen pond Children with snowballs on the edge of the woods. Eileen puts the cup down and sighs. There's a body at the bottom of that pond. A body she put there 76 years ago. Outside, it has started to snow. Thick, lazy flakes drifting through the dark. Five gold rings. Bursts, lyrical and loud, from the doorway of the pub. Eileen takes the paraffin lamp. She doesn't have any batteries for a torch. Every house has a Christmas tree in its window. Shiny baubles, Christmas cards on strings tacked to the wall. A man with his collar turned up, walking to the post box, glances up and hurries on his way. Eileen smiles to herself. It pleases her that he sees her as a ghost. An old figure in black carrying a lamp into the night. She passes through the gap in the wall. At this time of year, the trees are at peace, untroubled by sunlight and leaves. They answer only to themselves. Aline moves carefully under the boughs. The roots aren't her friends. They won't mind twisting her ankle and tipping her face down into the snow. At last, beyond the meadow is the pond. Surrounded by the shadows of rushes and ferns, the water is deep and black. Dull ice stretched across its surface. Eileen clears her throat and speaks out into the dark. Merry Christmas, Catherine. So I live to see another year. The water does not reply. Memory has faded the events of long ago. Eileen doesn't remember Catherine as the enemy, with kicking feet and strong hands. Only a classmate, who she, Eileen, pushed, gasping, into the pond. Every year, on the darkest day, Eileen returns to this spot and invites Catherine to claim her soul. And every year, Eileen walks home, untouched. I will see you again, God willing, Eileen says. As she turns around to trudge back, it occurs to her that Catherine is the only one who has known her all her life. The only one who understands the person who Eileen really is. The snow is deeper now and Eileen's footprints are clear. The trees watch but never judge. As she returns to the road, ice in her boots, 
Customers spill out of the pub, singing and slipping and laughing in the snow. Eileen closes the cottage door. As the earth turns, she dreams of pondweed and dark and the never-ending cold. Daniel Draper is a prize-winning writer from Derbyshire whose work is influenced by the uncanny and macabre of the everyday. Here he is, reading his monologue, Solstice. I met this woman, and we'd been dating, and she asked me to go to a do at her family's in this big old manor. So I went. Well, you've seen no like this house. Proper Sunday night costume drama vibe to it. Or one of them old Hammer films. Looks ace, but gas-built size of Wales. And then the cars, Bentleys, Jags, Range Rovers. And I turn up in my van. Now, I'm not prejudiced. I've noted against being a posh's bit of rough. My last boyfriend was a landlord. But it felt like I was there as a party piece. Everyone just stood about with syrupy, amber-coloured drinks, looking both nervous and smug. There's a mum and dad, an auntie, an uncle who I swear down was actually wearing a cravat couple of milk-white dolts that were her cousins what could have been vampires, and then this family friend, who was smiling, but from the nose up, looked like he'd been struggling through a shit since 1998. The mother said we should play parlour games, so we decanted into the parlour. Blind man's buff and charades and that as I got steadily but thoroughly wasted. I don't know what were in them drinks, but they were strong. Later, Cravat snapped us each a branch off the Christmas tree. I got a big fat one from the bottom. The mother said we had to sweep away the evil from west to east nine times each, and the person with the barest branch would be the winner. So off we go, and I thought it were the booze, but I swear I could hear them twins hissing, and that family friend chanting under his breath. But I thought nothing of it and cracked on. Needles littered them floorboards, But I won. The last game we had to kill death, ready for the spring up on the landing. The dad got out of his set of fake knives and we had to race and stab this dummy. It's easy to say something was wrong in hindsight, but you try keeping your head straight after a night on it. Anyway, I ran. I didn't know at the time that my knife weren't retractable. Didn't know. But that dummy weren't a dummy neither, until it was too late. Not until all that blood. So I turned round to get help. That lot had all got masks on, and I last stepped forward and led me into the bedroom, sucking the blood off my fingers. The bed were covered in pine needles and we had at it. I think, I don't know, it's all a bit... Muddled. Anyway, I woke up on Boxing Day at mine with an NDA I'd signed and a cheque for 50,000 quid. I saw her about now and then over the years. With this baby. I don't like to look too closely at it. I mean, would you? Van Manwaring is a writer, academic and dramatist who teaches creative writing at the Arts University in Bournemouth. We've split his slightly longer monologue into two parts. So this is part one of The Sunstones, written and performed by Kevan Manwaring. It was dark, darker than Glyneth could remember. In all of her eleven years, she hadn't known a night like it. It seemed to go on forever. She pondered this as she sat, hunched, nursing the small fire, huddled in her hand-me-down cloak that always dragged in the mud when she collected kindling or got caught on brambles during the berry moon. With a stick, she nudged the unburnt section of log closer to the flames. The embers stirred, 
glowing and spitting sparks up into the vast night sky where the gods sat gathered around their own fires. As a sudden icy gust whipped the flames, Gleneth shuddered and tried to shut out its freezing touch, as cold as her baby brother's toes as he wriggled into the bed they were humiliatingly forced to share top to toe within the family hut. He always tried to snuggle close to steal her warmth, and no matter how she shoved him back, she'd always awake to find him curled around her like a dog, yet even their hound stank less than him at times. Still, they were a family, and as her mother always told her, they had to look after each other. It was a big, hard world out there, and nobody beyond your tribe would give a cowpat about you. They all irritated her at times, but life was so frail, like the flame she nursed on the longest night of the year, as they all knew. Every day they were reminded by their father how lucky they were to survive, how lucky they were to still have their mother who recovered from bringing them into this world. There were many families in the tribe who weren't so lucky. Yet lucky was relative, as their father also reminded them, as it meant more mouths to feed, more chores to do, they all had to pull their weight. And so Gleneth found herself tending one of the watch fires burning that night. She could see them like a constellation, glowing in the dark across the stark winter landscape, grass and scrub glittering with a hard frost, and dominating the plain, the sunstones. Their negative presence, a deeper darkness against the night, unmistakable. There the priests gathered to perform their secret rites. She could hear the throb of their deerskin drums. They would be at it all night, building to a crescendo by dawn. Before sunrise, she and the other watchers would take a burning brand and process into the stern presence of the stones, crossing over the white ring of chalk into the sacred place. There they would douse their flames in the frost and greet the rekindled sun. This was the first time Glyneth had been allowed to tend the watchfire by herself. It was drummed into her what a great responsibility it was, lighting the way, collectively creating an avenue of golden light to guide the power of the reborn sun into the crucible of the stones, channeling its life-saving energy into the land. Once again, tribes from far and wide had gathered. Once again, Gleneth was unnerved by their strange accents and impenetrable tongues. But for the first time, she had noticed a boy from one of the seafaring tribes who had travelled down from some remote island in the unimaginable north. A boy with an unruly shock of black hair from beneath which glinted eyes of sky smiling at her as he too prepared his watchfire in the gathering gloom of the previous afternoon. She could not see him now, beyond the small star of his fire, but the memory of that smile made her cheeks burn. Was he looking across to the fire at that moment? And what was he thinking? What strange land had he come from? And would his lips taste of the sea? She blushed at the thought, and quickly doused such nonsense. She had a job to do. Impatiently she poked at the fire, wishing the endless night would end, and she could join in the great dance that always followed the sun's rebirth, Maybe then she would start to feel warm again, and maybe she would even bump into the boy. Ford Dagenham's writing previously appeared in our podcast, A Wild and Precious Life. We'll post links so you can find out more about Ford's writing in the show notes for this podcast. His monologue is read here by Chris Gregory. ear like a missed belt loop you just noticed. This sartorial mistake already retroactively compromises you. While we're on belts, our belts are financially tightened, so I hunt for supper. Well, I say I do. I'll head down the watering hole. I tell wife, quiche is in season, or I say it is. I tape a steak knife to a clothes rail. Hunt like that. Or, I say I do, exposed in the cold. There's a tension in air otherwise empty. 
Winter air, always empty. Now the changing seasons, they're like good wine and heavy cheese. Winter is death, is vacuum. People add the colour. This tension, it's the new flu. Christmas on a razor's edge. I felt pre-millennial dread in 1999, celebrating the numerical misunderstanding. This is like that. Midnight dissipated it then into a leaden January four years long. I volunteered to work one Christmas. Hospital job. There were equipment checks and stuff to move. I expected atmosphere. Laughter. But it was flat echoes. Stuffy eating. I only talked to the cook. Ex-Navy chef. Barking bile. At least in dialysis, they were having a quiz. Later, I ran a bath and watched a couple of films. Alone? Yes. I'm better now, thank you. Talking of being better, I'm long-term ill now. Hospital job, a rosy hindsight dream. But with the world on fire, ice domes sweating, uber flu, interweb rule, It's dystopian is what I'm getting at. Point being, long-term sickness fits in like a jigsaw piece. I gasp bad air in the 4pm patio chill, thin neon shards in the black sky. I am bleak midwinter. I'm in Christmas rehab. That's my joke. Being indifferent gets you labelled a Grinch. Office tension same either way. The pressure of year's end disrupts me. When I attempt sleep, my brain opens a book of nonsense plays and reads to me. My winter hypnagogue is occupied by a soap opera of strangers. Foraging for supper is dystopian. The end of the garden, where fences meet, like a ship's bow. There's an opening where an alley used to be. A narrow no-man's land of skew-whiff fences. This is the way to the watering hole. Or, I say it is. I hunt quiche there, and pie, between matchstick trees, the water low. Or, I say I do. Cat comes too. Hunts with a barbecue skewer. Or, he says he does. Grey dawn and pink dusk. We're there because flat winter sunlight conjures up migraines. I found this waterhole following fox, or I say I did. Sometimes cat rides on fox's back, or he says he does. They hunt pizza and ham sandwiches in chilly mist. Puddles, irregular discs of ice. I'm hoping we find turkey and grass-fed roast potatoes. December's here. That's the consensus of calendars. Still it surprises. The first of what? I say to wife. December? No. And suddenly, there is so much to do. Or, I feel there is. The next monologue is written and performed by Janet O'Donnell, a recently retired teacher from South London. Janet took up writing during lockdown and we're pleased to share this monologue, which is called Trouble and Strife, and is read by Janet herself. The Fairfield was a very different place this frosty midwinter night. The last time she'd been in such promising company. Empty promises, as it turned out. But by the time she discovered that, it had got to the point where the choice was no longer hers. The memory of the fizzy, frivolous excitement that had bubbled up inside her and overflowed like an overripe bottle of scrumpy haunted her like the -the will-o'-the-wisp. Now she found herself on a path that she must walk alone, unless the shadow man could help her. 
just as the Kalyach had described. The dark shadow of the man and the dark shadow of the tree were almost indistinguishable. The black thorn, small and twisted, with spiny, untidy branches. The man, tall, lanky and bony-limbed, resting a gnarled fist on the knobbly handle of his stick fashioned from a branch of the very same tree. Everyone knew his silhouette, had seen it striding across the horizon towards the home of any young person come of marriageable age. The shadowy chieftain, who kept a tally of the moon's waxings and wanings, casting powerful spells to broker marriages, She bristled with awareness of her situation. Out of respect, she stood by the edge of the deep, dark pool a little distance away. The child quickened in her belly, and instinctively she cradled both hands around it. Already numbed by her father's anger, and by the way her mother had shut her out of the house with blank-faced resignation, She was impervious to the frosted chill of the midnight air. I've come to ask for your help. No answer was forthcoming. But nonetheless she continued, still in a whisper, I know, by the cycles of the moon, that my fate is not the one I had expected, nor sought at this time. The silence told her that it might be advisable to try flattery. You have great knowledge and understanding of the people of these hills and valleys and may well have found me a match if if this had not happened to me. At last a sigh that rippled the surface of the pool, deflecting the moonlight. I beg you to look kindly on me and on the child growing inside me. Will you find a man willing to take me as his wife? The answer came to her, as surely as the wind stung her cheeks, and as certainly as the woodland floor was a place to rest, however cruel. Here she must wait, as the wise woman had predicted. Remembering the southernwood leaf that she had brought with her, she bent down to put it in her shoe and made a fervent wish, as she had done every night since realising that this was the only hope for her and for her baby. No Christmas angels here, no shepherds, But if spirits kept their promises, all would be well. Maggie Sorkin's work featured in our A Wild and Precious Life podcast back in August. She's a published poet living on the Isle of Wight and her monologue, which she also performs here, is called Unread Stories. I'll spare you the blow-by-blow account of Christmas Day, but you'll know what I mean when I say Sunny Girl had her stormy head on. She'd spent all her benefits and won't get anything now till Tuesday. That's five days with no money for food, backy or a fix. It started in the kitchen. She was sat at the table muttering and making faces. When she realised I wasn't going to cough up, she was shouting and making her way to the door. I told her to clear off. She whacked me in the face with her Davy Crockett hat. I shoved her. She kicked me and left, slamming the door. More of a cat than a dog fight. I took Buster for a walk along the seafront. The day had a bite to it. There seemed to be more people on their own than usual, 
and a young Asian guy wished me Merry Christmas. No one can see into your past. We walk around like unread stories, and here I was already rewriting the events of the day, realising I'd moved on. I was no longer afraid to say no. Back in the kitchen and our friend Jack's arrived and Ted set the table for three instead of four. Just then the phone rings. It's Sunny Girl sounding calmer, inquiring whether she's still invited to dinner. I ask if she's in a better frame of mind. Ted demands an apology. Two minutes later she's at the door, armed with three orange roses. In the end, you'll be pleased to hear, it was a good day. We argued over the duck and made up over the crackers. In the evening, another friend arrived and we sat talking till midnight, though Sunny Girl did most of it. The gear she'd managed to get hold of had done the trick. She told us about the night she'd spent sleeping under Jacob's Ladder, a bridge in Somerstown and about her pet angelfish that liked to play football. She said that since she'd become a meat-eater, she could pack a punch. It's difficult to tell what's true and what's a delusion. I guess I ended up thinking she was more eccentric than insane. She was wearing a long tiger print dress over the thermal leggings I bought her and a pair of Cinderella slippers. When it was time to go, she put on the old flying jacket our friend Alan had given her to keep her warm, and her Davy Crockett hat. She gave us all a kiss goodbye and left, thanking us for a lovely day. Here is the second part of The Sunstones by Kevan Manwaring. Every year new fires were made from the stray embers of the old. Friendships, marriages, alliances, interlocking like the sunstones, becoming stronger together. Over the next three days there will be much feasting and oath-taking. News of the year will be shared. Rye assessments of good or bad seasons, skirmishes and feuds over a few too many horns of mead or ale, and with sore heads, full bellies, and promises pledged, the tribes will make their farewells and begin their long trek home, scattering to the obscurest groves, vales, and coves of the land. And with each new sunrise, the sun would linger a little bit longer in the sky, and life would slowly return to the slumbering earth. Glyneth rubbed her arms and exhaled a frozen cloud of breath. That time could not come soon enough, but for now, she could swear that the sky was starting to get a fraction brighter. Now she was able to start making out the lay of the land, the long line of the avenue sweeping down to the slowly winding river. The watchfire still glowed, but it would not be long before their light would be overwhelmed by the rekindled sun. She could see the figures huddled over them, blowing on hands or stretching and stamping feet. And opposite her on the other side of the flickering divide of parallel fires. The eyes of a dark boy from a distant isle shone. edition of Alternative Stories and to all of our readers and contributors. We'd also like to thank everyone who has listened, downloaded and supported the podcast throughout 2021. Please subscribe if you haven't already to hear all our drama, fiction, poetry and writer interviews and have our forthcoming editions delivered to your podcast feed the moment they're released. 
This is our last podcast in our fifth season, but we'll be back for more in early 2022. In the meantime, we'd like to recommend two other Alternative Stories productions you may enjoy. The Dex Legacy is a science fiction audio drama series written by Emily Inkpen and produced by Alternative Stories. With episodes first appearing on this podcast, The Dex Legacy will be appearing early in 2022 as a podcast in its own right. Here's a trailer. Almost 1500 years ago, our ancestors landed on this planet with technology we have never managed to replicate. We were sent here in giant seed chips, with more data than any one person could ever get through in a lifetime. 10,000 people and some animals were left with all this knowledge, except the plans for interstellar travel. So, they didn't want us going back. Why? I expect this planet had more tricks up its sleeve than they anticipated. We've been dragging ourselves forward until now, Tristan. This invention of Osa's, it surpasses everything they knew. I was told to create the most scientifically advanced weapon the world has ever seen. I did not sell it, and I did not detonate it. When Varian Isran Ren go into battle and kill a multitude, do you feel responsible? That's different. And how is that? Hmm? It is not Devic's responsibility. So this bomb was not mine? Didn't you hear what I just said? The rebels are coming, Ren. Get ready. Lost Isran. She's been taken captive. I don't have much time. The electrical currents disabled her ship. We cannot track her. You mean to ask me if she's already dead? I don't. No. We can end their lives at a push of a button, no matter where in the world they are, and they know it. A person should not have to live with that threat. Seconds count here, Varian. I know, but losing you as well would make this a very bad day. Have you thought about what they might be doing to her? I'm trying not to. Don't be stupid here, Ren. Wait. We may have a serious problem. You think that if Ivzra escapes the rebels and chooses to run from us, we won't be able to find her? That is exactly what I'm thinking. Find her in. I will. So you really think countries will choose to hire Dex military in times of need rather than maintain their own military power constantly? And you believe you can keep Dex Island neutral? Yes. How? Because they will fear us. If all goes well, after today, they will all fear us. find out more about the Dex Legacy by visiting our website thedexlegacy.com or one word and search the Dex Legacy in your podcast app to subscribe. We'll post links in the show notes. Write On Audio is a podcast from Pen to Print, the creative writing organisation from the Barking and Dagenham Library Service. We've produced four episodes of Write On Audio, a podcast aimed at writers everywhere. It includes writing tips, author interviews, writer showcases and highlights from the print version of Write On Magazine and the online Write On Extra. You can find it by searching Pen to Print in your favourite podcast app. You'll hear some familiar alt stories voices, including presenter Tiffany Clare and actresses Sally Walker-Taylor and Hadia Morris. Write On Audio is a new podcast from pen to print. Taking the best bits from Write On Magazine and Write On Extra, we'll bring you writing tips, features, interviews, and excerpts from the work of our contributors and guests. Most importantly, though, if you're a writer, poet, or dramatist, published or not, we want to hear from you so we can share your words and your unique voice on our podcast. Search for Pen to Print in your favourite podcast app to listen and subscribe. Out now in all podcast apps. Finally, we'd like to recommend our recent audio drama, Real Boy, from writer Kaylee and Steed. Here's a trailer. A puppet has come back in. One of my custom models. Operational issue. The persona? Ten-year-old boy. Owners call it Carlo. The owners were concerned about some behaviours the puppet was displaying. What kind of behaviours? Violent tendencies. That's impossible. It's concerning, certainly. It's impossible. 
it's not a military model. There's never been a single documented instance of a domestic puppet causing harm. Not one. Nevertheless. It threw a hammer. At an insect. I wanted to see if I could do it. Do what? Hurt something! Why would you want to hurt something, Carla? Because they can't! Who can't? Robots! What the hell? The Derrida barrier should stop it doubting its own existence. It can't become self-aware. This is all bloody impossible. The hour is late. We'd like to end this podcast by wishing all our listeners a merry festive season and a happy 2022. Midwinter Monologues has been an Alternative Stories 2021 production for the Alternative Stories and Fake Realities podcast. Stories and Fake Realities Podcast. Audio drama, poetry.